once again uh, to those who are joining us for the first time. And uh, if there are any who are joining us uh, online, Karibu uh, Sana, it's great to have you. Um, we're going to continue our journey through the book of Acts. And uh, for those who are with us last week, you remember that uh, we saw a small team being sent out uh, from a church in Antioch of Syria. And uh, as we get into this morning's story, you'll see why I call it Antioch of Syria. And uh, what's significant about this time is that the gospel is spreading out from uh, Middle Eastern areas, if you would like, and is going out into the greater Greco-Roman world. So as we start this morning, uh, last week, I kind of asked the question, why? What motivated their mission? And this morning, I kind of want to look at the what. What was the mission about? Why were they sent out? Now, if you were to ask an ordinary uh, Kenyan, what does the church exist for? Or maybe you were to ask one of the politicians, why does the church exist? I wonder what kind of answers you get. Maybe you might hear the church exists to build schools and hospitals. Or maybe someone else might say, hey, the church exists to help improve the moral fabric of the society. And someone else might say, hey, the church exists to empower the poor and uh, uh, encourage the economy. But as we look in today's story, we're going to see that this team that was sent out was not sent out primarily to build schools and hospitals, although those are great things, was not sent out primarily uh, to build economies. It was not sent out primarily to run uh, marriage and, and burial events, but they were sent out to proclaim a message. And so if they were sent out to proclaim a message, we must ask ourselves, what kind of message is this? I mean, what, what could be more important than building places of care for, for the young and, and the sick? What could be more important than improving people's livelihoods? What could be more important than giving the basic building blocks, being with people in times of celebration and in times of mourning? And we're going to see that the message that they proclaimed was the message about the grace of God. They felt that this message was a really big deal. They felt that this message was the difference between life and death. And friends, I really believe that if we lay hold of this message this morning, without exaggeration, it could completely change your life. So now we're going to read from Acts 13. We'll get in from verse 13. And I want to highlight three ways in which we see this message of the grace of God. Firstly, we're going to see that we see this message in Scripture. And then we're going to see that we see this message in history. And then finally, we're going to see that the perfect embodiment, the fullest expression of this message is in a person. But before we do that, I'll just pray for us. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for 
the wonderful songs we've been singing this morning, the, the wonderful truths, that these are not things that we have made up through our own imagination, trying to escape the harsh realities of life and inventing a mythical God with mythical love. But these are the results of your acts in history. These are the results of the revelation that you have given us. And most of all, these are the results of the work that you've done in people's lives for millennia. And so, Lord, we want to receive like thirsty ground the truth of this message like rain. Let it refresh us. Let it bring life to us. Let it, re let it reinvigorate us. Holy Spirit, we invite your work in our hearts. And we say without you, we can do nothing of any worth or any impact. And so would you come? Would you come and speak? Would you come and deliver? Would you come and reveal your love? Would you come and give hope? Would you come and give life? And if you agree with that, would you say amen? Great. So we're going to pick up in Acts chapter 13 uh, from verse 13. We're going to go through a fairly long passage, so I'll intersperse it with some, some comments. And then I'm going to pick out just how we see the grace of God in Scripture, in history, and finally, in a person. Let's get in. Acts 13, verse 13. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos. You remember last week we left them on the island of Cyprus where they had a dramatic encounter with a magician and the ruler of that island, Sergius Paulus, came to faith. And they came to Perga in Pamphylia and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. Luke summarizing a journey that would have taken at least a week, maybe a couple of weeks, in just a sentence. And then he, he makes this comment about one of their companions, John Mark, who was Barnabas' cousin, uh, leaving them as they were venturing inland into Asia Minor, today modern-day Turkey. And this becomes a big deal, a big fact, or a big issue. Later on in the story of Acts, you'll see in chapter 15 that Paul didn't take that lightly, and it ends up being something that divides them and Barnabas. But for today, we'll just move on. So we see Paul and Barnabas journeying 200 kilometers uphill through the Taurus Mountains to come to Pisidia of Antioch, or Antioch of Pisidia. Now, at that time, you might be wondering, hey, these guys came from Antioch. Yeah, there were many cities named Antioch after a Greek ruler. And I think this just shows that the story of Scripture, the story that we're studying, it doesn't come from Luke's imagination. Luke is telling us things that are steeped in history. Let's carry on. Acts 13, 14. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand, said. Now before we get into Paul's message, what we have here is just a normal example 
of how the Jews used to meet in their synagogue worship. And what would happen is that they'd have times when they would read from different scrolls. And the, the Jewish scripture is basically divided in three sections. You've got the law, you've got the prophets, and you've got the writings. And so normally they would read from one scroll for the law, and then they would read another scroll from the prophets, and they would have times of prayer. And then they would invite different people to come and give an exposition. And Paul, he, he, maybe he was dressed as a rabbi, he, he had the credentials of a rabbi, and so they invited him uh, to come and speak, presumably based on what they'd read on that day. And then now we'll see what Paul spoke about the grace of God in Scripture, in history, and in a person. Let's hear Paul. Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king and, gave, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who would do all my will. And in this passage, we're going to see the grace of God in Scripture. And what Paul does, Paul is really familiar with the Hebrew Scriptures and basically gives a summary from Genesis to, to Malachi, if you'd like. And the striking thing about Paul's summary is it's all about the acts of God. Now, I know there are many of us today who are familiar with the, what we call the Old Testament. And I wonder if you were brave enough, and I, I asked you, could you summarize the message of Genesis to Malachi? How would you do it? And I know many of us have got problems with what we read in the Old Testament. We, we've got problems with the banishment from Eden. We've got problems with multitudes of people being killed by floods. We've got problems with fire rained down on, on Sodom and Gomorrah. We, we've got problems with the conquest of Canaan and what seemed like wholesale genocide. We, we've got problems with what we see in the Hebrew Scriptures. And so would you say that the whole story is about a harsh, vindictive God coming down on sin? Would you say it's about an angry God expressing his rage and wrath against sin? Or would you say it's a story about a God who is loving, who is full of steadfast love and kindness as we're singing this morning, and who is slow and patient, slow to anger. Would you say that the story of the Old Testament is a story about good people versus bad? Or is it a story of a good God dealing in kindness with a sinful people? 
when Paul sees the story of God's dealing with Israel, and by extension, the whole of humanity, Paul sees a good God doing good things to undeserving people. And friends, this is what we mean when we talk about the grace of God. It's a good God doing good things for an undeserving people. Now if we quickly trace with Paul, he starts by saying, hey, God chose your forefathers. And then he says, he, he preserved you and increased you in Egypt. And then after that, he came and rescued you from slavery. He, he rescued you from an enemy that was too great for you and that was oppressing you. And when Moses was, was looking back at, at what had just happened with God bringing out the Israelite nation from Egypt and, and taking them through the desert for 40 years, this is what he said to them. In Deuteronomy, he says, it was not because you were more in number than any other people. No, when, when God came to Abram and chose them, Abram was an old man. He was 75. He didn't have any children. He came from a family of, of moon worshippers and Ur of the Chaldeans. He wasn't chosen because of his goodness or his holiness. He wasn't chosen because of his great potential. And friends, we, we might have a problem with, with this idea of exclusivity that God chooses people. But I want you to know that God doesn't choose for the sake of exclusivity, but he chooses for the sake of inclusivity to show that anyone can come into intimate relationship with him. And so he chooses the most unlikely people and makes them objects, examples, great life illustrations that he's a God who does good things to the undeserving. And Moses carries on and says, this is not why God set his love on you and chose you, for you are the fewest of peoples, but it's because that the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Essentially, if we were to boil down what Moses is saying in those verses, is that, hey guys, it's got nothing to do with you. You bring nothing to the table. No, God has come into relationship and done all these wonderful and mighty acts on your behalf because of who God is, because of his love, because he is faithful, because he keeps his word and his promises. God is good and does good things to undeserving people. And if we keep going down with, with Paul's sermon, he says that God put up with the Israelites in the wilderness. He, it wasn't just a case of God preserved them, but actually God put up. It was, it was with, with great trial up on God's part, with, with great testing. Not only did God put up with them, he then went on to fight on their behalf when they got to the land, and he gave them a home. And again, as Moses is preparing the children of Israel to, to get into the land, this is what he says to them in Deuteronomy. Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness. And what he means by that is it's not because you have kept your side of the bargain in relationship with God. It's not because you've been good at doing what was expected of you in this relationship. 
No. But in fact, you are a stubborn people. You are a difficult people. So we hear that it's not only, not only is it because of you or because of us, but actually it's in spite of you and in spite of who we are. This is what Moses said to them. Remember and do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness from the day you came out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place. You have been rebellious against the Lord. And so we see that God didn't do good to the Israelites because they performed wonderfully and deserved all his goodness. No, it wasn't a pleasant experience for God. They were difficult, stubborn, and rebellious. And friends, I don't know how you see yourself. I don't know how, how you see your history. When you look at how your life is going, whether it's going well, whether it's not going as well as you'd like, do you, do you stand back and admire and say, hey, it's because I persevered in school. It's because I, 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 I was working so hard in my workplace. It's because I've, I've done all these wonderful things. This is, this is why all these good things are happening in my life. And on the other hand, do you look at yourself and say, hey, it's, it's because of the mistakes that I've made. It's because of the, the wrong choices. Is it, is it karma coming back to bite me? Yet we see in this story that the grace of God means that God doesn't treat us as our weaknesses, failures, and sin deserve. But instead, he blesses us in spite of our weaknesses, sin, and failure. And you might say, hey, Cephas, that's, that's a really good, that's a really nice message for some people, but not for me. Listen, you, you don't know what I've done. I've, I've, I've I, I aborted a baby, or I helped, I, I forced her to abort. You, you don't know. I've, I've been promiscuous since I was 9, 10. I've, I've stolen from, from my workplace. I've stolen from, from the people I love. No one can trust me. And I say, hey, Cephas, I've, I've done things that they're so shameful. I haven't shared them with anyone else. Yeah, that message of grace is good for certain people, but not for me. But wonderfully, we see when Paul is telling about the history of Israel, he, he ends with this man, David. And he says, I found David, a man after my own heart. And for those of us who are familiar with the story of David, we'll know that David went on to seduce someone else's wife. And then to, to cover his tracks, he arranged for the murder of her husband. And then after that, he took her to be his own wife. And yet in this passage, we see God saying, this David was a man after my own heart. Friends, this, this is the scandal. This is the scandal of the message of the church. This is the scandal of grace. And, and when David thinks about how God has treated him, we, we see him saying this in Psalm 103. God is sheer mercy and grace, not easily angered 
He's rich in love. He doesn't endlessly nag and scold, nor does he hold grudges forever. He doesn't treat us as our sins deserve, nor pay us back in full for our wrongs. As high as heaven is over the earth, so strong is his love to those who fear him. And as far as sunrise is from sunset, he has separated us from our sins. And maybe you haven't seen God in this way. Maybe you've kind of seen God as as this brooding schoolmaster, always looking over your shoulder, looking to see where you've gone wrong. Or or maybe God is maybe one of your parents who who never saw anything good in you. I, I remember when we were growing up, it was all about when you came with your report card home. It was about the position on, on that report card and would ask, what number did you come? I don't know if you've got that same term. I don't know if it's grammatically correct in English, but that's how we asked it. What number did you come? And sometimes I'll be like second or third in class. And the question is, hey, who was first? Who was first? And, and, and this was my goal throughout my, my school years to, to, to topple that guy on top. And sometimes you come with your marks and it's like you've got 80%. And, and it's not like, hey, you got 80%. It's like, where did the rest of the 20% go? And friends, this can feed our picture of what God is like. That, he, that he's looking over our shoulder and saying, yeah, yeah, that's all right. But I know you can, you can do better. What, yeah, I, I, I've seen what you're doing. But hey, I can see that you're missing this. Yeah, that's okay, but... But when the adulterer, the murderer, looks at the grace of God, he says, hey, God doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. This is the grace of God. He does good to us despite our weaknesses, failures, and sin. And so we see God's grace in Scripture. That the whole story, the Hebrew history, is one of a loving God, a good God doing good to undeserving people. And this brings me to the second point, that we need to see God's grace in history. Not only is this the story of Scripture, but it's also the story of history. And for those familiar with the story of the Old Testament, you might Imagine some of the Jews listening to Paul say, hey, Paul, we agree with what you said, but we feel like you've left out some, some important parts of our history. It feels, Paul, that you're, you're sugarcoating our history to try and bring across your point. Like, hey, Paul, when we were being enslaved in the first place in Egypt, where was God? Hey, Paul, remember a whole generation in the desert? Do you remember the stories about being, people being bitten by snakes? Was God's grace then? Hey, Paul, yeah, you, you tell us about the judges being raised up, but remember, they were only raised up after we were oppressed in the first place. Hey, Paul, do you, do you remember how God deposed of Saul so that he could put David as king? Hey, Saul, do, do, how about, look, we're still in exile 
Saul, haven't you read Jeremiah and Lamentations, what happened? How, how women were raped and kids dashed on rocks? So, yeah, where was God's grace then? And, and you might agree and say, yeah, I've, I've heard the story, Cephas, I, I hear what you're saying, but, but where has God's grace been in my life? Where, where was God's grace when, when my parents died from HIV or, or, or when they abandoned me or when their marriage or, or when was God's grace when, when my own marriage fell apart? Where, where was God's grace when, when I had to drop out of school because I couldn't pay my school fees? Where was God's grace when, when I was abused? Where, where is God's grace? Even beyond myself, where, where do I see God's grace when we see so much corruption? When, when the economy is stagnant, we, we can't get jobs, we, the businesses are not working. Where is God's grace? But friends, we, like Paul, need to, to see the thread of God's hand, the thread of God's love, and the thread of God's grace in our lives, in our country, in the history of our community. You see, I might not know the struggles and the pain that you're currently facing today, but this is what we do know. You see, when, when we come in the area where we can't know for sure, we need to always make sure we retreat onto solid ground. That's what we do know. When we've got questions we can't answer, we need to revert to the questions that we do have answers for. And we find those answers primarily in Scripture. And this is what Paul would later on say in Romans 8, 28. And this is what we know. And we know that God causes everyone to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. Friends, this is what it means to see God's grace in history. It means seeing that God takes the good, the bad, and the ugly and turns them into something beautiful, something meaningful for eternity. And so when the Israelites say, hey, where, where, where was God when we're being enslaved? Paul's responding and say, hey, he was working for you, a greater deliverance than anything you could have imagined. And now when they say, hey, where is God when we're in exile? Paul could say, hey, he's working to bring you to an eternal inheritance that will never be taken away from you. Where every tear will be wiped away. Where there will be no more pain. And the old order of things would have passed away. And friends, if we're to find meaning in those moments of, of pain, in those moments of struggle, 
We need to learn to see God's grace in history. But now, we're going to get into the third point. So we see grace in Scripture. We see it in history. But what pulls it all together? What brings it into beautiful symmetry? What makes it meaningful and purposeful? How God actually operates in this grace is through a person. And so, friends, finally, we need to see God's grace in a person. And I just, we're going to continue in from Acts 13, 23. And Paul gets right to the heart of his message. This is what he's been wanting to tell them all along. This is what they were sent out to talk about. This is the big idea. This is what is the message that is greater than any other activity of social good that the church could do in the world. This is the message of this person who embodies the grace of God. And this is what he says. Of this man's offspring, that is David, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus as he promised. And I'm going to get into a bit of a longer chunk of scripture. And what I want you to realize is that what we're now getting into was not scripture at the time that Paul was telling it. This was less than 20 years after Jesus had been killed. And so Paul is telling them is something that he could easily verify. Paul is telling them about a decisive moment and point in history that has just occurred that is of cosmic and eternal significance. And so he won't spare any detail. And I want us to catch hold of the detail that he gives. Before his coming, John, they would have been familiar with John, had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I'm not the one. No. But behold, after me, one is coming, the, sand, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. And what John is saying is, I'm not even worthy to be his slave or servant. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham. And Paul is saying, Yes, you've got a rich history of seeing God's grace in your history, but there's something that is coming now that has happened that now is the dividing point. And those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they didn't recognize them nor understand the words of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep, 
and was laid down with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. And what we see Paul saying in this last bit is that history and scripture has come together in this person that is Jesus. In the way that he lived, in the way that he was condemned to die, he died. This execution that was reserved only for non-Romans and slaves. A death that was considered cursed by the Jews. How he was buried dead beyond proof. And finally, how raised from the dead. Friends, the message of the gospel is not a philosophy. It, it doesn't rest upon great teachings from a great teacher. This, these are not teachings of, of Confucius where we look back and say, hey, Confucius has some great teachings and, and we want to follow him. Or hey, Buddha had some, some great teachings and, and we want to follow him. Or, or, or this or the other teacher. It's based on a historical fact that there was a man who lived and was shown beyond proof to be more than just a man. He was shown to be divine and came and he fulfilled thousands of years prophecy when he died upon the cross and that he was raised by the power of God and this was seen verifiably by those who had known him best who had for over 40 days they walked with him and ate with him this is where the message of Christianity rests and so as you if you're considering it if you're exploring it I want you to and he say, hey, I want to start by, by, by seeing how the church is. How are the people in the church? How, what are their lives like? What is their behavior? Or I want to start by, by exploring its teachings and seeing if they work. I want you to start by saying, do I believe that this actually happened in history? And if it did, it changes everything. And friends, Jesus is the culmination of scripture and history. You can't make sense of scripture without coming to the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. And you can't make sense of the events of your own life unless you see it in light of who Jesus is, what he said, and what he has promised. Friends, without this person, the story of scripture and the story of history would be one of judgment and wrath of God against deserving people. But because of what Jesus has done, he has completely broken the barrier. And now it is fulfilled. The story is one of a good God, a loving who didn't spare his own son but gave him up to take and suffer punishment on behalf of undeserving people. And I love how Paul ends his message. He says, hey, forgiveness of sin is now being preached to everyone. There is an amnesty for rebels, 
There is a cancellation of debt that is happening. The year of Jubilee is being announced. And as I was just thinking about this, I, I remembered when I was still a student, our country was going through a very difficult time. For those who don't know, I'm from Zimbabwe. The economy had crashed. There was no money. There was no food in the shops. And the government started this program that they called Bakosi. And basically, they were saying people would sign up, and then they would supply you with groceries. And so they mobilized students and sent us out to go and register people. Now, I'm not sure whether the, the government was uh, doing an unofficial census just to know who's who because we're approaching elections. Because after we signed people up, nothing happened. They didn't provide the goods that they'd provided, that they'd promised. And sometimes we might look at the gospel in such a way that, hey, there's great promises in this message. There's a big talk in this message. But does it really work? Is it really true? And friends, God is not like the impoverished government of Zimbabwe. God has a soup of grace. God has abundance of goodness. Whatever the need, God can supply over and beyond what you need. And so, as I close, I just want to end by reading what Paul says to those who are listening to him. Because as much as this message of God's goodness says, come just as you are, it's not a message to say, come and stay as you are. It's a message that demands a response. If this is true, how are you going to respond? If this is true, will you just continue with your life as though you haven't heard it? If this is true, will you continue in the same direction as though God hasn't spoken in scripture and in history and finally through a person? Let's listen to this warning that comes from Paul. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. Friends, this is the warning and the invitation. Will you receive this grace? Will you believe this grace, will you believe in this grace? And as we close, I just want to invite the band back up. I've highlighted different things in this message. I don't know what God has been speaking to you. But I really believe that God wants to fill us with a knowledge of his grace that goes beyond the head and affects the heart. In the story of the prodigal, it says that the father ran and embraced his son and kissed him 
You know, the father could have sent a letter, say, hey, son, everything is forgiven. Don't worry, you can come back. But God didn't, he didn't send a letter. The father didn't send a letter. He came himself, hugged his son and kissed him. And friends, that's the difference between knowing it in your head, knowing it that it's written, and knowing it in your heart. I really believe that this morning, God wants us to experience this embrace. God wants us to experience this holy kiss of love. And so why don't we just stand together? And I'd love for us just to respond individually. Just whatever area that you felt that the Lord was speaking into your heart. Then I want to just invite anyone. Maybe you felt God dropped a word on your heart for someone specifically or for the congregation as we've been having our entire time together. I just want to invite you, come forward and speak to Simba. But let's just begin to respond to God. Respond in your own words. Respond about how you see God in Scripture. Do you see Him as this great, loving, generous, good God? Are there areas where you have doubted His goodness? Are there any places where you've questioned God? Friends, this morning is a morning for you to embrace the true picture of who God is, that He is good, that He is loving, that He does good and loves those who don't deserve it. And maybe you're here and you've, you've carried shame upon you like a stain. There's, there are things that have happened to you or things that you've done and you felt, hey, this thing is so heavy. I can't. I can't. Surely God can't love somebody like me. Surely he can't forgive somebody like me. And this morning, God is opening his arms to you and saying, hey, my grace is sufficient. Where sin abounded, grace abounded even more. And so this morning is a time for you to lay aside that shame. It's a time for you to lay aside that guilt because Jesus paid for it completely on the cross. And friends, I believe God is commissioning us. He's saying, hey, this is who I am. This is my message. When I say go into all the world, this is what I'm saying, go with. This is the message I want you to carry. This is the message that is going to be the cornerstone of who you are as a people. This is the message that's going to define who you are as a church. But I just don't want it to be on your lips. I want it to be in your hearts. I want you to experience it because you can't give what you don't have. Friends, God is inviting us to receive of the abundance of His grace because He wants us to be those who give the abundance of His grace. And oh, how our community needs it, how our families need it, how our nation needs it, how our continent needs it. And so we say, Lord, would you do it? Lord, would you fill our hearts with the knowledge of your grace? Would you fill our hearts with the knowledge of your love?
Thank you for your grace in scripture, in history, and ultimately in Jesus. Amen. Amen.